welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. This is me, your host, uh, Will. I think I'm slightly what you'd call kind of fatigued. It's like um, a long fatigue. Long COVID these days. I think it's like a long, long fatigue. And I don't know if it's that's in bad taste or not. But um, I mean, I had seven hours sleep last night. Still feel like a sack of potatoes, you know. Uh, anyway, um, it, it, the reason this one is going out on a random night of the week as opposed to a Sunday is because I sort of ambushed slightly by um, Pearl and Ray, uh, my daughters, who are sleep stealers. They're sleep stealers. Uh, they steal the sleep, but they don't like turn it into money. They don't go to the sleep pawnbrokers or something and, and, and turn it into anything. It, 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 it serves no, no purpose other than to just drive Laura and I completely mental. <sighs> what a moany little bitch I am. Anyway, this week's episode of the Limehouse podcast. Chris McKitterick. So this guy, the dude, wrote a wonderful biography on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, their time in Los Angeles. And it's called Somewhere I Feel Free. And it's a fantastic book. Um, I read it pretty damn quickly. It's really cool. It's so insightful. It's, it's, it's part one of this sort of three-part series that I'm going to bring you on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It's part one because he does such a good job uh, outlining the main talking points, the kind of the historical linear moments of the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers story, which is, of course, one of the greatest rock and roll stories of all time. I mean, if you haven't already, I suggest you watch Running Down a Dream, the Peter Bogdanovich documentary. It was done quite a few few years ago now, 2007, but it all still st- stands together, holds together really well. It's got some amazing talking heads on it as well, from like people like um, Eddie Vedder to Dave Grohl, all those kind of like, you know, the standards. Johnny Depp's in it as well. Jesus, what was he up to then? Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic documentary, and, and this book does a really good a job of going deeper way 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 deeper into all those um sort of some of those talking points within within the documentary and then also sort of actually deeper into like some of the history of of, of la of, of la which is quite interesting it is actually really cool so he's a super super lovely guy he was so amiable and, and we had a really good connection as i did with all three of the guys that i spoke to in this mini sort of tom petty um series um, it, it started off in and around the time of, of Tom's um, anniversary of his um, of his passing, which was three years ago, which is hard to believe. And a sort of over about a couple of months, did some really really cool interviews. So I'm really really excited to bring them to you. But this is the first one. I hope you really really enjoy it. And you know, it, as it is kind of will be targeted towards the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers family. But I'm just going to tell you right now. Even if you're not into Tom Petty and Heartbreakers, it don't mean a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what that was. But what I mean to say is, if you like a story, then this is it. This is one of the coolest stories. It's it's full. It's got everything, man. It's got the uh, 
adventure. It's got the, the, the ups and the downs, the introspective uh, personalities, the, you know, the people that have, have done pretty much everything, you know, and, it, and it's really, really cool. And this, this, this part, the first part, is, is quite historical and it'll take you through kind of the, the ABCs of, of the Tom Payne Heartbreakers landscape and I hope you enjoy it and I know you will anyway just before I go just want to say if you are on Facebook if you are on um what's that other one Twitter yeah um I nearly always say Tinder Jesus haven't been on that in years still in there though isn't it maybe I should get back on it do married men do that with kids don't know probably um yeah, and uh, yeah, Instagram, we're on there. Like I said, um, Twitter, it's, it, just find us, the Limehouse Podcast. It'd be good to have a chat with you guys whenever you fancy it. Um, and uh, as always, if you feel like checking out my short film, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk, it's on there. The film is called The Name, and it's on that website, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. So anyway, look, enjoy this conversation with Chris McKitterick. You're going to really, real love it. Real love it, big time, okay? And uh, here's to Tom Petty. May he rest in peace and enjoy. Oh, my God, get into his music right now. Do it. It's fantastic. You will not regret it. Oh, and Chris's book. Get it. Okay, just get the freaking book. (sighs) Somewhere I feel free. Chris McKittrick. Right, yeah, so, um, dude, how long? Just off the bat, just a boring sort of like, uh, I don't know, geeky stats, as it were. How... Because I know this this book is seriously well researched. How long does it Thank take you. you to com- to compile all the all the uh, I don't know evidence? <laughs> well, I only I only had a year to write it on my contract, so uh, it was a very vigorous six months of research. Which, but that's all in addition in all of the stuff I've because I was a fan. I've been a fan of Tom Petty forever, so right. you know there was obviously in, I guess institutional knowledge that was already in my brain. Um, so I, so luckily it was, it was someone who I knew well enough that I could, I could chase after the different leads, uh, knowing what I wanted to say, as opposed to just starting, like if, if someone told me to write a book on, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of somebody I have no interest in, you know, if someone told me to write a book on Dave Matthews, I'd be lost, you know, man, I, I love it. I love it. I mean, what, what I, what really surprises me is this town, um, I'm, I think there are a lot of petty fans out there, a lot of people that, like myself, perhaps that think they know quite a lot because they've seen maybe Running Down a Dream sure. and, and what have you, and they've you know, listened to a lot of his music, so therefore they think they know everything. What, with your, what your book does, it kind of like pulls together a lot of reviews from gigs, a lot of um, opinion, and a lot of, you know, from previous you know, people like Paul uh, Zollo's work sure. and uh, Warren Zane's work, and pulls them all into this cool really easy to read um uh, account of of his time in la and um and of course what's re- what immediately i liked about this book was the fact that it is just about 
LA, you know, it, and, you know, he doesn't go into great detail on like, say for example, he doesn't go into great t- detail about the Dylan tour in Australia or New Zealand or whatever. That's great and everything, but I don't want to know all about that. You know, it's covered elsewhere. I, it's covered you know? elsewhere. Right. You know, I love that. And I really love how it's bookended as well. Cause in the, the prologue, you've got, um, how Petty goes out on stage at the, um, is it the Hollywood bowl or not yep. Hollywood, bowl. Hollywood bowl? Yeah. Yeah, and then and then it um, you know obviously his he passes like a week after his final gig after the Hollywood Bowl, so it's really cool. And I, I take it that was sort of obviously that was intentional, like duh. But um, you know it's it, it's in a way this is morbid, and it's just a thought that's come to me perhaps, and it's a little ill thought perhaps. But in a way, um, it's it's got that beginning. His life now has a beginning, middle, and sadly an end and and therefore like a preserved legacy like how do you feel about that i absolutely agree because there's certain people that they just seem for whatever reason they just seem to pass exactly at the like poetic moment and for tom petty it was the heartbreakers just finished their 40th anniversary tour uh at in what they you know in what tom considered their hometown uh, los angeles um, it was like this great victory lap. They they got to go all over the U.S. Uh, did Hyde Park in 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 your neck of the woods, and they they did uh you know they really had such a phenomenal send off. And you know one of the things that I was uh, and and especially feel with Tom Petty is Tom Petty was also a guy who who uh, you know he always wanted to he always kept putting in new material in his live shows he's not mm-hmm. the guy who's who's uh you know i love the rolling stones but they play the same you know they they change up three or four songs but it's right. all songs that were writ- written before you know 1985 you know yeah whereas tom petty like when the mo when the mojo album came out and they did the tour they did i think five or six songs from the album um which is so rare for like a classic rock band to do you usually just go out mm. and it's so you know he certainly wasn't a guy that wanted to just keep doing oldies tours you know he kept saying that the 40th anniversary tour was going to be the band's last big tour um because he didn't want to do 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 sort of the the you know let's just keep going around every summer and playing the same hits um so Mm -hmm. i almost feel it was somewhat somewhat poetic because it was one last look back and and then he's gone you know it's really sad but you know there's still stuff in the pipeline which is cool yeah no that's that's definitely for sure yeah i mean the other thing i really liked about the this book is uh, the histrionics in terms of like some of the venues that they the, the the heartbreakers played if we if we roll it right back to the beginning what like 19 i don't know when when they first landed in la um just just i'll just i'll finish this point and then we'll start on the journey i think which is quite a cool point or direction to take the to conversation anyway but the um the venues in this book you know you 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 go through the the really cool like histrionic um parts of each of of the the buildings you know what they used to be before they were music halls and that's really cool like you good you get a really good sense of california but and that's just a plus that's all i'm saying as a geek that's a fucking plus for me thank you but um so the band the band formed properly in LA, but um, what was there? There's like a journey, isn't there, from Gainesville to LA? Can you can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah. So um, Tom Petty, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers really grew out of this band that was known as Mud Crutch that formed in Gainesville, Florida, and 
they were the big fish in Gainesville. They were the band of Gainesville, Florida. And they knew to get any bigger, they'd have to go to either LA or New York uh, because they really needed to get to that next level. They were the biggest band in town in Gainesville, but you know, there's at some point you've reached the, the biggest venues you can play in, in, in that city. So they decided to go to LA uh, mainly because you know, the band had, uh, first of all, preferred warmer weather, but also they had a love for <laughs> Southern California music of the birds and Buffalo Springfield and, and things like that. They, they felt a connection to that music. So they come out to Los Angeles and uh, Mudcrutch uh, almost immediately signs a record deal with Shelter Records, um, which was run by Denny Cordell and Leon Russell. Um, the the, great, the, the Denny Cordell, the Brit man, the, the, the yes. coolest you like Brit, right? Yeah, you got it. You got <laughs> it. Um, and here's the thing. As successful as Mudcrutch was in in their hometown, as great of a live group as they were on stage in the hometown, they couldn't get it together in the studio once they started recording. They put out one single, which did nothing. Uh, hmm. went nowhere, no, barely anyone heard it, got a little bit of a write-up in Billboard, but that was it. And it wasn't until, um, you know, the band kept trying to record, kept trying to, kept trying to do well, but it just wasn't clicking. Not, it wasn't working. So Shelter released all of the other band members, um, which uh, included Mike Campbell, later of the Heartbreakers, and Ben Montench, later of the Heartbreakers, oh, except yeah. for Petty. They kept Petty along because they saw potential in him as a songwriter and paired him with yeah. Leon Russell. Um, with Leon Russell, they... Which, which is a cool right. fact that nobody knows, right? The Leon right. Russell thing, oh, I didn't know that until like maybe I read Warren Zane's book. Uh, but then like it's just weird. Like Try and put Leon Russell and Tom Petty together. But sorry, carry on. It's crazy. No, and it, it was sort of an interesting pairing. And I think it was such a unique pairing is the reason why they never really did anything together. They were supposed to be songwriting, but really Petty was kind of in the role of a gopher and like right-hand man for Leon Russell, setting up uh, recording opportunities. And that's how Petty got to meet George Harrison for the first time, Ringo yeah. Starr, Brian Wilson. So it really was like a master's degree in rock and roll royalty, getting to meet all of these these people. Um, so. Turns out that uh, Petty's starting to write uh, and work on a solo album, but just really uncomfortable with the idea of, of being a solo musician. He loved the camaraderie of being in a band. Um, mm. The Beatles were a band. He wanted to be like that. The Birds were a band. He wanted to be like that. So uh, turns out that uh, Ben Montench put together a recording session with a bunch of musicians in LA that had come out of Gainesville. Uh, so just to clarify, Ben Mont's the um, the keys guy, right? So he's playing correct. all the keys and making it all beautiful. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, so Ben Montench, you know, keyboardist of Mudcrutch, uh, decides to get some of the Gainesville crew together. He wants to work on some tracks. And Tom Petty walks into that room and he looks around and he goes, I see a band here. And, yeah. uh, you know, in that room uh, was Mike Campbell, Ben Ma Mike Campbell, guitarist, Jeff... Uh, uh, no, that's later. Mike Campbell, yeah. <laughs> guitarist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ben Montench, keyboardist, uh, Stan Lynch, yeah. drummer, and Ron Blair, bassist. And uh, among some other fellows who were in the Heartbreakers orbit and then didn't end up in the final well, band. Yeah, people like floating around and stuff. You got it. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, 
and Tom Petty says, look, uh, you guys could play around and try to find a record deal, but I already got a record deal. So if you come with me and we form a band, we could, we could just start recording right away. And that really was the birth of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, yeah. um, which also was not super successful at first. Which is really cool because I really love that because this is a story. The Heartbreakers story is one, or at least Tom's story is one of the uh, so unconventional. Like I think so. If you compare it to these days, very unconventional. You know, a band like venturing thousands of miles across the country was a big bold step to move out of 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 Gainesville. You know, where they were fame, like famous local band, to to go to LA and then he and then it kind of does fall apart. But then boom he meets you know these these guys that benmont brings together and i love that i for me it's like um i kind of close my eyes and i want to think about what's going through like seeing tom when he sees those guys that benmont's put together for the first time and i wonder what's going through his head other than obviously you know they have to these guys are mine i <laughs> need these guys but it must be like oh man you know wow here we go like lightning has struck yeah, and to me, it's also so interesting because Campbell, Petty, and Tench were all in Mudcrutch, and they couldn't get their act together. And mm. really, they just changed the rhythm section. They get a uh, new bassist, new drummer, and suddenly the sound clicks. But that's unfair to, to, to say that about Mudcrutch, really, because you have to also coupling the fact that Petty had learned all this experience with his days with Leon Russell and sort of, yeah. sort of got an education there. Big time. I mean, like, you know, geez Louise. I mean, just like, just in terms of just structuring a song, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's insane. What I can't, I can't imagine what that must have done for him. But, um, so I guess the next, the next show, I mean, I don't want to like ne necessarily sweep through everything too quickly because the, but that pff, you kind of have to, I suppose. But it's like, there's so much depth there because like Petty's married right he's married what age 21 22 or something thereabouts yeah yeah and like they're expecting their first kid around like 1978 or something it's like earlier than that yeah oh, so really? yeah oh. so he's a father um and at some point uh he actually sent his wife jane and their oldest daughter back to gain uh back to gainesville because he wasn't making enough money to support them in in southern california he was saying hey guys you know i can't I'm, I'm, I can't support you. And, and, and they went back for a couple of months, which is, mm. you know, that's got to be heartbreaking, you know, uh, to, to, to have to go through that, but, but still pursuing the dream, you know, Big because time. there would be so many people that, that would say, you know, well, we're just going to get out of this town. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know what their, what the conversation was like, but he's like, I'm staying here because this is where my future is and yeah. I'll bring you back someday. I know. I mean, that's kind of spells out to me anyway, like what, what um, this story, this story in particular, because they were very much on the right on the edge, you know, really skating on super thin ice in terms of a band, in terms of him. And and it's, you know, right then he could have easily just chucked it in. Obviously, that's not on the cards because <laughs> Petty's who, who he is. You know, he's the man who wrote I Won't Back Down. It's running through him. Exactly. Right. Um, so like I guess it's kind of what what the band do in the studio then right so their first um, their first album how does that's um, like a, quite a, a quick quick like production isn't it it's not mm -hmm. it's, they don't spend too long cranking that one out 
No, they didn't have the luxury of time, uh, really. Yeah. They, they sort of just went in and they started going and they recorded it right at Shelter Studios and they put the album out and much like the first Mudcrutch single, doesn't do much. Um, and I think it's important to remember the context of what other else is going on in music in 1976, in the, especially in the United States. Um, you got disco going on and the Heartbreakers aren't disco. Uh, yeah. You have the sort of the the early stages of new wave. Heartbreakers really aren't new wave. Uh, you have punk going on, which the Heartbreakers they had some aggressive tunes, but wouldn't call them punk. Um, in fact, Tom Petty didn't like it when he was referred to as punk. There yeah, were, was it? He says like, if you say that again, I'll punch you or something. Yeah, I'll cut you. Journalist. Yeah, yeah, I'll cut you. Yeah. It's fucking brilliant. I love yeah. that. It's, it's, so it's and, and but. In a sense, that statement is so punk to say, if you call right. me a punk, I'll cut you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you got it. And uh, so it seems like they really just didn't know what to do with them, where to play them, what station to have them on, you know, what radio program to, to play them on, because, you know, what bills to put them on with other bands. You know, they, they would play at the Whiskey in, in L.A. opening for Blondie, which, you know, Blondie that's a totally different fit when you really think about it Big and song. uh yeah and 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 so it you know actually the heartbreakers ended up having more success initially in england um oh really yeah yeah well sorry i say oh really like i say that oh really as a say someone who hasn't listened to this before it's like yeah. that's what i freaking love about this story mm -hmm. it parallels other bands that go further like sorry like Pixies and Nirvana, right? So they kind of made it more over here than they beforehand. Yeah. And it really wasn't until uh, a fellow, which who I hope you get the chance to speak to, a man named John Scott, who discovered Breakdown. He was a promotions man. And he said, yeah. look, this song's, this song's got it. This song yeah. has it. And uh, a kind of famous John Scott story uh, is, he, you know, he approached the band and said, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get your song on the radio. And they basically said, yeah, right. The radio hasn't played our song in a year. No way. Right. Um, and sure enough, he got L.A. stations to play it. And that's really where the Heartbreakers had their, you know, breakout um, at their so first. Cool. Their first. And uh, but what was kind of funny is by that time they had already finished by the time Breakdown you know, finally got on the charts. It became a top 40 hit in America by hitting number 40. So it just got in. Yeah. Um, they already had recorded their second album. You're going to get it. So they had to go and promote the second album. Uh, they really didn't have time to go back and, repo you know, work on singles that they had released from the first album. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of crazy because everybody looks at American Girl and think, oh, that's such a great big hit for Tom Petty. And it really wasn't a hit song. Mm -hmm. Um, it only became a favorite years later because it's such a great song. But, you know, when it initially was released as a single, it, it didn't go anywhere. I, I mean, that is freaking crazy. Like, I, I don't know how to... I mean, I understand there's like, you know, this sort of... You know, it almost, it's almost part of... It's almost part of the rite of passage to be in a band, great songs that are overlooked, right, by A&R guys or whoever. But to overlook American Girl, but it was put out. It's fine. It's just it just didn't hit. Like I I wonder the cause. The world was not ready for it. And you know I don't know. It's a crazy one. Yeah, I mean I I think it's just because the Heartbreakers at the time didn't fit in any of the 
predominant genres of mm. that were popular then. So, you know, a disco station is not going to play American Girl. You know, a station that played like, um, you know, um, punk rock is, it, first of all, those barely existed and the ones that did aren't going to play it. Um, so it's, it's the ones that are playing like Blondie are not going to pick up American Girl and play it. It sounded like the birds from, from yeah. you know, uh, a decade before. You know, so I think that's that's what was working against it. But there's a certain timelessness about that, which is why years later we're still listening to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And there's a lot of bands that have come and gone since then. Yeah, no, definitely. It's like that, just that D, that D, ding, 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 and that really cool sound, right? Just before the songs that, and it's that that drum beat from last night, right? well, the strokes lifted from American Girl for last night, right? I love that. Yeah. But, um, God damn. So, I mean, it's funny because you listen to that album and, and I, I know later down the road, um, Stan Lynch is like, uh, I think he's he's on Running Down a Deep, the Running Down a Dream documentary talking about his drum sounds sounding punk ass. And Jimmy Arvine says that, or whoever the drum tech was goes, the reason it's, pu- it's punk ass, because your drums are punk ass, man. <laughs> you know, you got to get it, you know, you got to get this, you know. So he gets a, but the first two albums, are, they are kind of lo-fi sound, right? They're, they're, they're a little bit, not clunky, but they're just, they're more mono sounding. As I know they're not, but you know, they're just not as, well, when Damn the Torpedoes comes along, right? That's just, puts everything to perspective but they're but again like they, they come out and their second album does how does that go down you know it did a, it did a bit better than uh than the than uh the because at least they had gotten you know their name through through breakdown but it certainly wasn't out of the gate huge hit i mean we're talking about the the idea that you know we think of uh, Tom Petty as this just incredibly popular musician with single after single after single, but that really right. was that the that that really wasn't the, the beginning for the band. Um, you know, they were having you know chal- challenging to get songs like uh, "Listen to Your Heart" on the radio. You know, stuff yeah. like that. I need to know, um, oh, which man. is another song that that is a great song, but it was a challenge getting these songs on the radio at the time. Um, again, because people really didn't know what category to put the heartbreakers in. But as you said, uh, Damn the Torpedoes totally changed the game when that album came out. Yeah. And I mean, that's the interesting part, isn't it? Because they were kind of selling not, you know, they weren't shifting many copies of, you know, they were kind of just like almost like a shelf band mm-hmm. at a record label. They were just like floating around. I mean, it didn't take an awful lot to scratch the surface and realize that there's, whoa, there is something going on. But when when was it really, what happened then to like, really, other than sort of like the fact that they had the, you know, they they had the opportunity to obviously record down the torpedoes, but what was it that, that propelled them then into the, in, into the stratosphere? Was there, were there partnerships, new like, I don't know, were there, the record label come in, intervene, go, hey, look. Yeah, so... So the first two albums were on Shelter Records, um, which is a very small record label, and and probably and they recorded at Shelter Studios, which probably describes why you know the sound of those first two albums, as you said, a little more lo-fi than what uh, what what to be expected. But Damn the Torpedoes was first of all recorded with, as you mentioned, uh, Jimmy Iovine, who's you know has since become known as one of the great you know rock producers. Uh, you know, so, so many albums to his credit. 
It's um, insane. So, and also so, the richest man in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, it happens when you it, make some wise yeah. investments. Um, right. Um, but uh, so not so we you had you had a good producer or a great producer. Uh, they were recording most of the album at Sound City, which is this historic studio in Van Nuys, California, the, the San Fernando Valley, um, which was known for just having this this great sound to it. Even though it was it was it's pretty run down, pretty dingy, but it's just it's it's one of these rooms that just has this this phenomenal sound. Well, there's and, this where the Foo Fighters were. There was a documentary, wasn't there? That the yep. uh, that Dave Grohl. Uh, yeah, did. he directed. Yeah, and that's yeah. well, you know, that's well worth checking out. Whoever, if you haven't listened, if you haven't watched that, I've got, I think it's just called Sound City. I don't know, but it's you're correct. Phen- yeah, it's a phenomenal documentary. Check it out. But anyway, sorry, Christopher. Please, carry no, no on. problem. <laughs> no, we got, we just got a ton of ton of stuff to talk about. So you know, yeah. but yeah, Sound City, great documentary. But yeah, Petty's in that one too, talking about the recording mm-hmm. of "Damn the Torpedoes." Um, but in terms of what one thing that uh, another thing that happened, this was, of course, the, the famous time when uh, Tom Petty ended up suing uh, his record label because Shelter Records went out of business and their assets were purchased by MCA, which uh, Tom Petty felt should have made his contract null and void. Uh, if you go out of business, someone else can't just buy my contract. That shouldn't be the way it is. So uh, on one hand, uh, he was furious about that, being having his 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 uh, music and him and his contract bought and sold. But on the other hand, it put him in MCA, which was one of the largest record labels at the time, and they had the promotional muscle muscle and the ability to push down the torpedoes once all of these issues were resolved in the courts. Um, so you had great producer, better studio. Mm-hmm record label with more power behind it and really they were maturing as songwriters or petty and 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 uh petty mostly and a little bit from mike campbell i mean if you look at the track listing at damn the torpedoes it's incredible to see it's just great song after great song you got yeah refugee here comes my girl even the losers shadow of a doubt and century city and that's just the first side of the album <laughs> right now, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's it is the funny thing is about that period. Uh, I've I, I think I've said to you, um, I've been wanting to write a film about Tom Petty for some time. Right. Just dialogue, just get it out there, see what happens. But the thing is, his life is too dense. It's that thing you couldn't do an, a a beginning to end. There's too much. This for me is the period that is possibly the most cinematic in terms of intense storyline we've got like a band that is fighting for their 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 rights to for their souls i guess at their music the soul of their music and whilst recording one of the the most iconic yeah. the most iconic album that they record like it's, it's astonishing the battle that they were facing yeah i definitely agree with that because you could have the the stress of working in the studio have like the courtroom drama aspect of it right. uh, and have a few shots of them when they did their lawsuit tour on the road you know like stuff ymca like that. it's brilliant yeah. Yeah. yeah that i could see but you're right that tom petty's life does not fit a three-act structure because you know mm. a lot of bands even ones with long careers tend to have one peak period you know um petty had at least three he had the peak. <laughs> yeah. He had the peak with "Damn the Torpedoes." 
He had the peak with full moon fever, and then he had wildflowers. And you could argue that he had another, you know, later on in the career. Um, but those at least are, are you generally recognized by Petty fans as really the three sort of uh, mountaintops. For and sure. most bands might have like the period where they have three great albums in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, for the next 20 years, they put out mediocre stuff. Petty found somehow had this ability of taking those three great albums and spreading them over a career, which is right. just incredible because most musicians do not have the ability to do that. No, I quite agree. Um, but just back to Damn Torpedoes, because it, sure. it is like one of those albums that um, attracts an awful lot of attention. My, I mean, my my feeling is that once that album comes out, there's no turning back. And then also the attention that comes to them, uh, particularly from uh, people like Stevie Nicks, starts, that's when Petty's really amongst them, right? When he's like really amongst the um, elite now that I think there's a that um, Dylan there's a Dylan moment, isn't it, where Dylan's playing somewhere in LA or whatever, and Petty Petty's there, and Dylan calls down to the state, uh, down to the audience. Oh, he's the, uh, he calls out various celebrities, and he goes, "Ah, oh, Tom Petty's here," you know, and right. it's like it's weird, right? That's I think that's a moment in Paul Zollo's book that he um he ref- he references, which is quite interesting. I, I I think like that Petty's starting to emerge now as this like rubbing like he's standing shoulder to shoulder with these freaking elites of the songwriting world right and he would only go to get even closer in that orbit as he progressed in his career yeah because right now he's still kind of in the young pup you know up and comer stage (laughs) he himself would would mature into you know at least one of my in my opinion one of america's great rock songwriters uh and he's he's just starting on that path now which is incredible to think of yeah exactly and so, like, how does it resolve itself then, the, um, the, uh, the battle with, with MCA? So what ended up happening is Tom Petty declared bankruptcy, which when you declare bankruptcy, it is, makes it easier to get out of financial obligations because you can say, I can't pay them anymore. Um, as has come to light in, in recent years, that uh, that was probably more of a bargaining tactic than an actual, like, I have no money left in my pockets. You know, I'm not, right. you yeah, know, yeah. Um, it's clever. because, it's clever. right. And uh, the big concern was, wait, if this pulls this off where an artist can just declare bankruptcy and get out of any record deal, it's going to ruin the, it's going to have record, record labels will have no pull on anything because anytime you know prince is mad at warner brothers i'm bankrupt you know uh yeah you know and and find a way to do it so mca makes a deal with tom petty that they put him on a sub label that they create called backstreet and they pretty much uh backstreet records and they pretty much give him most of his demands one of which was hiring john scott uh, who who gave him their big break to work at backstreet which was i'm sure uh scott uh, john scott was was thrilled to to, to get that job offer Oh my! But isn't that cool? Isn't it cool? Like how the guy just stuck to his guns. He was like, "Nah, I'm not moving, mate. Like, just see you later." As we say in England, trot on. Yeah, um, and, and he and that happened again with the with the very next album, Hard Promises, because even though Backstreet Records was created for Tom Petty to really uh, really do his thing, MCA saw how successful Damn the Torpedoes was, and said, "Hey, you know what?" Uh, your next album, we're going to give it 
quote unquote superstar pricing for <laughs> dollar bull- more bullshit yeah. I, oh my god you know so so instead of 898 uh you know and again in keeping those that are listening and nowadays keep in mind that this right. is inflation you know 898 uh the album was going to sell more sell for 998 and petty was pissed about this because he saw it as sort of taking advantage of his fans and mm-hmm. and of course got great publicity out of this uh because there was a famous rolling stone cover of him ripping a dollar in half um but the idea was really you know that dollar may make my album inaccessible to some of my fans and mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not okay with that and for a little while um you know eventually mca uh relented uh in fact uh it got to the point where where tom petty threatened to name the album 898 uh <laughs> um didn't know that that's great yeah but uh mca eventually relented and then pretty much a lot of other bands did not want to raise the price because they didn't want to be the band because now it was such a famous price point yeah. um but that was something that went on throughout tom's tom petty's career uh and something that came up when i was researching the book that i didn't really connect with uh at first but compared to other bands uh of of the of, of tom petty's stature in the industry you know i'm thinking like the springsteens and things like that tickets right. to see him were so much more reasonable um in his because he what i found out uh and i didn't i didn't know this and in talking with petty fans you know and and showing their appreciation um Mm. for this that uh petty's management would would individually negotiate with venues to try to get the lowest price point on tickets as opposed Mm. to let's say and i love them to death i wrote my last book about them the rolling stones who pretty much go you know well you know what's the cheapest ticket uh let's say 500 bucks they'll pay it you know uh, because they know they could get that money um yeah, you know, it was, and I talked to Petty fans that told me, like, you know, I really appreciated that because I could see him three or four times on a tour and not have to take out a mortgage on my home, you know, yeah, because, I mean, be, and, and you, yeah, certainly. And, and a lot of bands, you know, could, could have pulled that. So, you know, it was something that you could tell a value that Tom well, Petty had for his fans. It's the part, it's the punk value. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's just there. Like, we, we talked earlier about how he was never, he was, you know, they tried to pigeonhole, pigeonhole him as a punker, a punk rocker, but it's like, yeah. he wasn't, but he's a hell of a lot more punk than any punks like I love and know. Most of those guys just fucking got hammered and just fell by the wayside. Like, there were a few that kept going, but not many. But he kept going and kept and, and became more and more punk. He kept on fighting his corner, you know, and, and, and speaking out for the, for the small man, which is actually pretty actually very hard thing to do you really yeah. i mean the amount of stress he went through i mean we, you know the stress that that man goes through it, it seems to me his vision is so strong his drive is so strong that he almost needs that that uh against the world kind of thing in him to to to, to motivate him i'm speaking like he's still alive if i feel yeah. like it, he is really uh sad but um it's like Hard Promises, man. That's a cracking album. Um, it's got quite a few overlooked albums on it, uh, songs on it. But that's when Stevie Nicks really kind of there gets involved, right? Yeah. So uh, great album, but certain did not perform commercially as well as Damn the Torpedoes. But there's still a lot of great songs on the album. Uh, yeah. Of course, you know the singles, the waiting, and uh, things like that. But songs like A Woman in Love. 
uh, Night Watchmen, King's Road, Letting You King's Go. King's Road's brilliant. Yeah, Wait, King's King... Road, we love that because that's about the King's Road. Over there you here. go. It's yeah. got some really... Yeah. Was it, a Pakistani man says, come over here, gonna fix you up when you go before you go back there. It's a great lyric in that. I love it. Yeah. Sorry, I'm now singing to you. I think I've overstepped <laughs> the mark. I'm sorry, well, Chris. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, and yeah, Stevie Nicks uh, sings back, back up on... Oh, and really... Uh, it's more sort of lead a co-lead on insider and you can still change your mind on the album mm. um and of course uh she also took a leftover or was was given a leftover song from these sessions uh stop dragging my heart around which got re-recorded so it was a duet between stevie nicks and tom petty and that was actually a huge hit for both of them uh, a yeah. little bit a little bit frustrating for tom petty because he felt that it undercut the sales of his own singles which is funny he, obviously stevie nicks is a dear friend of him but he still wanted yeah. to have you know his own single be oh, Jeff, cool. you know not the duet um so that was uh that that was kind of funny but that's that created a connection between the two of them that they would they would often pop in on each other's shows perform yeah. those songs i mean it was really this sort of brilliant thing and it, it helped stevie nicks also find her own voice as a songwriter because she had she had just left or not just left but she was making her first solo album after you know coming to fame in, in fleetwood mac and uh you know with fleetwood mac you're just one voice out of a bunch of brilliant songwriters mm -hmm. uh now she had to really do it on her own um so you know it was really a really a big benefit to her to uh to, to to work with tom petty and, and vice versa so it's funny because like she is uh she she, <laughs> she always said like if they had asked me to join the heartbreakers i would have done and it's like petty's like no this is a these this is just guys you know yeah in the in the best possible way but she got as close as she possibly could to be becoming a heartbreaker and and what have you um yeah. and i always love that yeah, I don't know if you uh, if you managed to see the seventieth birthday celebration. Um, I did, that they did. Yeah, yeah, and and Stevie Nicks told this just beautiful story about how oh. towards the end of Ta uh, Petty's life, he had given her like a sheriff star or something, and had it like and and wrote you know to the only girl who was ever in our band or something like that, Dude. which was you know I've I fucking cried. I really yeah. did. I was like I was watching it in in bed uh, with with my wife and. Um, there were some beautiful tributes um, and it started off wonderfully with um, Listen to Her Heart, right, by, um, was it Modest Mouse? I can't remember. Um, but they just did the most amazing covers. But then the Stevie Nicks tribute, man, I just fucking broke down. I was like, fine, that's it. I'm giving it. I'm, <laughs> I'm going with this. But um, so, yeah, and I mean, we can we can fast forward a bit here because there are a few albums that tend to just sort of follow not the same pattern, but they don't kind of hit the the stride as much as damn the torpedoes not to say there weren't any good because one of them's right behind me here this one here yeah um, long after dark long after dark great album i love that ben montench straight into darkness is one of the best piano breakdowns ever but um i would say like maybe it's maybe it's cool for us to just fast forward and bring people up to speed on full moon fever and how that came about because that clearly is one of his most iconic albums um like what because that is a pretty cool story how how did that say from a how did it all come together in terms of the cogs in the in the wheel 
So uh, Tom Petty met uh, producer um, ELO extraordinaire and producer uh, Jeff Lynn in England when he was touring with uh, Bob Dylan, when the Heartbreakers were touring with Bob Dylan. And uh, Jeff Lynn had just finished working on George Harrison's comeback album, uh, Cloud Nine. And uh, I don't know, Cloud Nine, Full Moon Fever, I don't know what's going on with the celestial bodies here, but there's just (laughs) some connection here. Um, And... Jeff Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty actually ended up reconnecting in in Los Angeles, and Petty said, "You know what? I love the sound that you got on uh, on Har- on George Harrison's album. Um, I'd love to just get together with you and record some demos." Well, if anyone, uh, if if you know anything about Jeff Lynn, Jeff Lynn doesn't really record demos. De- <laughs> Jeff Lynn just records songs. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Jeff Lynn, Tom Petty, and Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers got together at Mike Campbell's house and just started writing songs that originally were supposed to be demos, but Jeff Lynn would just take Tom Petty and Mike Campbell through the mo- through the, the production process and f- polish off these songs in uh, two days, you know, which mm-hmm. was to them extraordinary because they were used to doing the, the classic rock band toiling away in a studio till four o'clock in the morning to make sure you get the right drum sound and right, let's take 27 on. takes of this guitar uh, part. You know, Jeff Lynn didn't work that way. He had a very he has a very layered production style where he'll you know put a couple of you know echo effects on the guitars and to, to make the sound sound bigger. But he he's got a very straightforward production process. And soon enough, it appeared that wait a second, we're not recording demos here. We're recording an album. Um, yes. And it became even though Mike Campbell was very deeply involved in this album um, with a number of co-writes on it. Um, it was officially Tom Petty's first solo album. Um, and again, the, the heartbreak, two of the heartbreak, two of the other heartbreakers make a, a few appearances on uh, Ben Montench plays piano on one song. Uh, and Howie Epstein, who at the time was the bassist in the band, uh, has some backing vocals. But other than that, it was really, for the most part, Petty, Campbell, Jeff Lynn, and Phil Jones, who was the drummer for, for mo- must, most of it. And it's just kind of incredible how it came together. Certainly, it didn't sit well with the other Heartbreakers at first. The concern was he and Campbell were going to run off and do their own solo thing. But uh, it was really good for Petty uh, to, to kind of break out of that environment and, and, and sort of flex his muscles as a songwriter and, and learn new production t- techniques from Jeff Lynne. Uh, because from that album forward, uh, Petty and Campbell ended up producing a lot of their own stuff. They felt a lot more comfortable with, hey, you know, we could do this uh, and we yeah. know what we're looking for. We don't need another voice in here. Um, mm. So it worked out great. It was another one of those wonderful education experiences that that Tom Petty had. And, and like, just to speak about a couple of the things I, I really love about it the, that you um, you depict quite well is in the book is that it's kind of like um, – it's almost like a garage um, band, right? The way they're recording stuff mm-hmm. and how um, they were very casual about it and it was almost like they could have just... Um, they were going to... Weren't they going to call it songs from the garage or something? Yeah, yeah. They were going to call it, but uh, Denny Cordell, who at that point had meant his relationship with Tom Petty, goes, this is too good to name it that. It's, that sounds yes. horrible because the picture was like... Petty sitting in, in, you know, like almost in storage with all these instruments around him. That was the original yeah. cover. Um, 
you know, and I'm sure the album would have been done just as well with that title because it's really about the songs. But you're absolutely right. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember where it came from, but Tom Petty said, you know, I wrote Free Falling just to make Jeff Lynne laugh. You know, like oh God, I was just yeah. I was just playing it and coming up with lyrics kind of on the fly. And, uh, you know, and, and here it is now, probably when people think Tom Petty, it's it's for most people, one of the first two or three songs they think of is Free Fallen. Yeah. And that was a song that they really polished off in about two days, which is yeah. just incredible to think about. Do you want to, because uh, I love that story again, there's another fucking story uh, do you, about um, how that song just nearly didn't even make it as a single. Well, that's yet again another battle between Tom Petty and his his record label. So Free Fallen, which is again, one of the top selling songs from from uh in all of petty's career was i think the f the third or fourth single from full moon fever i don't know off the top of my head um mm -hmm. because the record label felt it's it's kind of a ballad it's it's not going to sell um it's too much about southern california nobody knows where reseda is nobody knows anything <laughs> about you know uh you know uh you know living in the valley people don't understand this and the thing is you don't have to recognize those names to to have an Who attachment. Gives a shit? Who exactly. Gives a shit? Um, in, <laughs> and to kind of give an example of that, um, a couple. I, I recently had to drive across the United States for for a, a job situation. Long story, but yeah. along the way, my wife and I were driving, and we passed Winslow, Arizona. And yeah. I said, and, and my wife says, "Do you want to go stand yeah. on the corner?" And I said, <laughs> "Yeah, sure." You know. And Winslow, Arizona, and if anyone's listening, if you're from Winslow, yeah. it's it's a tiny town, you know, no, no offense, but it's a small, small, tiny <laughs> town. But yeah. you don't actually have to go to Winslow, Arizona to appreciate that lyric. And you can picture it in your head, you know, and of course, I'm talking about the Eagle song, Take It Easy. You know, I was yeah. standing on the corner in Winslow, Arizona, and such a fine sight to see. That's it's a sick. girl, my lord, my lord, in a flatbed Ford, slowing down to take a look at me. I didn't Jackson sing it because I don't have a good man. voice. Yeah. But you can you can picture that lyric in your head. Yeah, it was Jackson Jackson Brown yeah. co-wrote the song as well. But you Amazing. can feel you can see that in your mind, even if you have no idea what Winslow, Arizona looks like. It's just for such sure. a great lyric. Um yeah. and that's what Free Fallen had go for. You don't need to know uh where Reseda is to have an understanding what uh, it's a long day living in a in Reseda. There's a freeway running through the yard. Um and, brilliant yeah and those of those those of you who live in live in southern california they know that actually there is no freeway running through Reseda. uh <laughs> but it, hey lyrically it works so who cares yeah and it, isn't it like that jeff lynn was sat down with tom petty and ahead of a record label or something was there warner brothers or something and they were like tom just playing the fucking song man playing free falling and they did an acoustic version and the guy just said okay yes i'll put that out yeah so what happened is <laughs> full moon fever sat on the, the the album sat on a shelf because mca really didn't think it had any singles on it which is mind-boggling <laughs> it's just um, brilliant i love yeah. that just so ridiculous. So it's it's funny because oh Tom Petty actually recorded um recorded the first traveling wilburys album after full moon fever and it came out first because full moon fever was still sitting on a shelf mm -hmm. um they finally convinced mca to put it out and and you were right they actually played full moon fever for who uh the head of warner brothers at the time and he said 
look, if I had that, I'd put it out immediately, which is why Petty ended up signing with Warner Brothers <laughs> after right. his MCA contract was done. Um, but yeah, it's just insane to think that uh, that there were people listening to Full Moon Fever and they would go past, you know, running down a dream, I won't back down, free fallen, and uh, and say, you know what, I don't, I don't hear it. These these aren't hits, you know. But <laughs> what do you know? I- I know. I. I mean that. That isn't just in music, right? That's in art. That's in all yeah. art. People don't know, and it's just, It's you know. It's just, It's just often the people with the power don't know. I don't know why that is, but that's just the way. Yeah. You know. And to but, be I mean, fair, he, he did yeah, it right. And, yeah, and to be fair, <laughs> a lot of artists themselves don't realize what the next hit song. You know, sometimes you'll hear artists talk about like, yeah, I thought this song was going to be a hit, and uh, it turns out it was this song. You know, so you never. I guess you never really know yeah no for sure i mean like that's an album like rick rubin says like he listened to that album on repeat for an entire year he like had that in his car for an entire year and i and I, I feel that as well it's actually quite a short album but i i really i feel it. it's just such a all over the place you have so much fun you can rock out and chill out it's a perfect freaking song but which rick rubin kind of leads me then into um wildflowers which has obviously been sort of re-released repackaged um wildflowers and all the rest just recently and it's yeah. absolutely absolutely incredible i was talking about it with warren zanes the other day think and saying how um like uh, somewhere under heaven this incredible song off the all the rest which is um a song that was kind of like in the vaults which has just been re uh, well released now that song as amazing as it is didn't make that album that gives it's, you an indication of how good that album is. Yeah, I, I, and on top of that, like there's a, a demo for a song on the album uh, that he never did a, a, a finished version of called "There Goes Angela," and yeah. when they put when they they re- they released that, his family released that uh, online before you know as sort of a teaser for for the album. And and Ben Montench had had a line on his Twitter account along the lines of, "I'm I'm so mad he didn't show us this song." You know, mm. it's a it, the song is so beautiful that I'm like angry at him that right. we never had a chance to work on it, um, and that that kind of shows you the the wealth of material that came out of those sessions. You know, God, um, yeah. that was time in, in in Tom Petty's life where his his marriage was 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 his first marriage was falling apart, uh, which sort of put him in a particularly emotional space for his songwriting, and he was just churning out music after you know song after song that was just these. That stand among some of the best things he ever recorded. Um, I quite agree. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, but yeah, that the the new release of the Wildflowers box set, which was like the holy grail for Petty fans, um, something that Petty himself worked on towards the very end of his life. I mean, the fact that it has um, the song "Leave Virginia Alone," which Rod oh, Stewart yes. recorded you know, about a year or two later, like I've been wanting to hear that song for, for almost 30 years, you know, because, <laughs> you know, 25 years, I guess, because yeah. it was, it was to know that there was a Tom Petty version of this song that I thought was quite a good song, but we never heard it. Uh, it was just like, when is it going to come out? And it sounds great. It's got this wonderful Mike Campbell guitar outro that that's not on the, the Rod Stewart ver- version. There's no yeah. kind of, uh, it's it just it's just it's just beautiful to, to to hear like his work in progress and 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 just was what such a prolific period for him 
Yeah, and to work with Rick Rubin as well, you know, to keep himself relevant, that's pretty cool, you know, yeah. to, to really keep pushing it along. Because I know he's worked with Dave, he worked with Dave Stewart on um, Southern Accents, uh, Don't Come Around here, here No More. And that's a, obviously that album, Southern Accents, did lose its way a lot. But I think with Wildflowers, it really held itself so won- wonderfully and it's kept its, it's kept its, I don't know its relevance in modern modern music, and and it'll probably it'll just stay there forever. It's just an absolute classic. But um, what do you think? Because he, like you said, he was going through a lot himself. Like he was saying, he's using a he was he was using a cane to walk whilst you know in the period when they were recording Wildflowers. Like Rick Rubin's thinking, Jesus Christ, what, what's going on here? But he was like not far off from becoming uh, like a heroin addict, right? Yeah, I mean, that was a little bit later. That was more yeah. towards the Echo uh, album era. So like um, about four or five years after. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, certainly, the, you know, a man going through personal pain. And, and really, that's that's something that, uh, you know, I, I know you spoke with, with uh, Warren Zanes, uh, probably could speak more to that, because that was really when that, his book was where that revelation came out. That, Brutal, that, yeah. Yeah, that Tom Petty had, had, was, had a heroin addiction that he thankfully had overcome. Um, so, you know, it's certainly something that that I don't have any particular insight in, but I can imagine mm-hmm. the personal pain that he was that he was going through that that he felt that he that he turned in that direction. What um, I mean, because what I love, what I, I guess I'm trying to highlight the guy was fallible. You know, he was he he wasn't just a songwriting. He didn't just like, yeah, he wrote endless, fantastic tracks albums whatever you know even on the people say bad albums it's like you listen to let you know, let me up i've had i've had enough that's a great album there's some bloody freaking awesome tracks on there um and they don't even they just dust over that people mm-hmm. just dust over that album it's a great album but i guess what i mean is it's just like the inner struggle of tom petty you know people have him like this down as this they had him down as this kind of southern you know southern guy who just like was very relaxed and very laid back it's actually a pretty full on full full on octane kind of guy right yeah and there's something you know uh i certainly don't advocate uh hard uh hard drug use but like you know there's something about like keith richards being on drugs that's cool <laughs> balance him out yeah but tom petty being on drugs like depressing you know what i mean and and i don't really know what it is about their personalities or their personas that make me feel that way but there's some rock stars they're like oh yeah jim morrison drunk off his ass that's awesome but you know tom petty in pain it just kind of hits you in a different way Uh, i'm I'm not really sure why i feel that way but I, i i do um, I think it's because he's just a sweet. I mean, it's a kind of a sweet guy. I don't know that. That's really boiling. That's kind of too broad a observation. Yeah. But maybe we just think he's a really lovely guy, and it's just. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's a bit. Of, I mean, maybe we need to get a psychologist in here with us. Right, you know, right, right, I'll, right. I'll open up another Zoom chat. You know, future episode. Um, yeah, definitely. Let's let's get you know like drill down into why why we think Tom Petty. We didn't enjoy him drinking. No, Tom, don't do that. <laughs> pick up the guitar and be lovely, okay? Now, whatever. But <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, it's just, it's one of the things. But the, the thing is, he, he got over that. And then for me, like, wrote those last three albums. If we can go on a wee journey there, um, that'd be quite cool. Like, Last DJ and um, Mojo and then Hypnotic Eye. I mean, Last DJ, that is, again, him being a, punk ass motherfucker he's like he's right he was album. angry 
right he was do you want to talk a bit about that album man that's a great that's great yeah. so the last dj you know not many rock stars would have the balls uh for lack of a better term to release an album criticizing the music industry and expect radio to play it um because the last dj which was the first single which is about a dj who you know is no longer allowed to play the music he wants to play um or you know anything that made his job fun and exciting um that was the first single from the album and there were radio stations at least in the united states that refused to play the song because it was critical of radio it's critical <laughs> of the radio industry but this was an example of of tom petty again you know having having empathy for his fans um mm -hmm. he was really bothered by the fact by the the fact of what he called golden circle or what was kind of known in the industry as golden circle tour packages where you uh where a fan could buy a ticket where you got the front row you got like you know a, a glass of bad champagne you got a t-shirt and yeah. they charge you a thousand bucks for it um uh, and you know you know kind of kind of kind of playing off or, or pulling on that super fan mentality i mean we have to keep in mind this album came out in 2002 we're just seeing the very beginnings of how downloading um and itunes oh, well not itunes yet but but illegal downloading no, and then later later um mp3s how that effect that began to affect the industry whereas uh musicians were not making as much money off record sales anymore and touring became the bread and butter which is what it is today uh not of course not at this very moment which is why it's mm. so crushing for musicians to not be able to tour right now yeah um but uh but yeah it was it was this idea that that it, it was it was trying to soak up every last dollar that you could get out of your fans i mm. mean and there's certain you know and look i i i understand that i i mean i'm a guy that's trying to sell a book right now i understand <laughs> trying to get people to buy your product trying to get people to to, to, to support you i get it but you know um and, and I can imagine if you got a bad, you're a band that you know your fan base is going to pay that amount of money. It's got to be very tempting to you know just go full like you know kiss and just start putting out every piece of merchandise that you could think yeah. of that they would actually you know uh, heartbreakers well, golf balls, heartbreakers caskets, heartbreakers throw pillows. You know, you look think at look at what's happened to festivals. I mean, right. they have been just absolutely decimated you can't it's it's fun brought to you by mastercard it's fun brought to you by barclays bank it's it's not you know glastonbury's gone super super commercial is that the only way festivals can make money nowadays i don't know because maybe there are too many of them i don't i don't know but there are so many bands that are totally complicit with it and you know you, you just it, it does make you sick and i just think petty was was good at going trying to hold back the tide a little bit yeah but i think that's just an impossible thing but with with um with Mojo, I think, because what was really cool about you know your book is you highlighted the the influence of, of Mudcrutch coming back into the band where we started right. our conversation, and how they recorded uh, Mojo, uh, and and it was more of a sort of uh, kind of a, a, a jam environment, and and that influenced them in in the, in their second to last album. Yeah. So the cool thing about what I love about the whole Mud Crutch story is so here you got a guy, Tom Petty, who's one of the top rock stars, you know, doing well, financially secure, put hit, hit after hit, hit song. And he decides after the Running Down a Dream documentary comes out and sort of, you know, goes over his past, like, you know what? I'm going to call up two of the guys that I used to play with 
back in Gainesville. And I want to, you know, get Mudcrutch back together. Nobody ever really had heard of this band. You know, they barely made, there was basically the footnote in every like Tom Petty story, like was previously in, in, a, ba- in a band with the weird name of Mudcrutch and decided yeah. he wanted to, he wanted to, to revive this band. Um, so he calls up Tom Leiden, who uh, is brother of Bernie Leiden, who helped found the Eagles and, um, or original member of the Eagles. And, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and gets 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 them together and decides we're going to record an album and we'll see what happens. You know, so they get together at, at this warehouse in Van Nuys, which is in the San Fernando, Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, uh, which is affectionately known as the Heartbreakers Clubhouse. It's where they store a lot yeah, of yeah. gear and equipment. Um, so Mudcrutch gets together at at uh, at at um, at the Heartbreakers Clubhouse and just kind of jams out songs you know and tom petty feels inspired because it's a it's a little bit different than what the heartbreakers do it's a little bit more of a country swampy southern influence sound um Mm. you know and it's just it's just just an incredible album it's different than heartbreakers but it's still recognizably petty and uh they put that album out they go on a short tour uh, where they play no Heartbreaker songs, they only play Mudcrutch songs, which again I think is really cool because That's they so could have cool. they could have been like, oh yeah, we're gonna play you know all the hits and then slip in a Mudcrutch song or two. Now you know Tom Petty's even playing bass because that was what he played when he was in Mudcrutch. Mudcrutch. So um, so after they they recorded like that, Petty and Campbell and, and Tench, who were of course also in Mudcrutch. They kind of like the feel of that that loose knit kind of jam for what they were doing. So their last two Heartbreakers album, both Mojo and Hypnotic Eye, they record at the Heartbreakers Clubhouse, pretty much standing in a circle, looking at each other, recording it live because they just really like the sound that they got out of it. For sure, it's so cool. It's so cool, and it comes across really well. I mean, I um, I I mean, I loved Hip- when Mojo first came out. I wasn't too keen on it. Um, in fact. To be honest, I had been turned off slightly by by Tom uh, in in the early noughties just because I was brought up on the more of the Into the Great Wide Open albums, which are very, mm-hmm. you know, the Jeff Lynne sound, very much more like poppy, for want of a better word. And then when Last DJ came out, I was like, oh, this is a bit, you know, it's like he's writing a song about the industry and he's really going after them. Where are the fucking hits, Tom? Give me the hits. I was being really, <laughs> I was being a bit of a twat basically and then um mojo again i was like whoa this is this is kind of like blues blues rock country kind of thing going on but then you know after a couple of years i'm going this is just fucking great grow up and the same with hypnotic eye i mean that immediately hit me that was just a brilliant album um and and was turned out to be obviously his last album you know but wow what a last album yeah yeah and uh, actually and in fact there was one more mud crutch album after but it was the last heartbreakers album mm. yeah because mud crutch 2 came out in uh uh 2016 where hypnotic eye was 2014 but yeah those last two albums i think mojo was definitely underappreciated well i don't think mojo was definitely underappreciated when it first came out um, I think part of the reason why it's just such a dense album. It's almost right. 70 minutes long. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's a journey to get through that album. 
Uh, and I mean is, that yeah. in a good way, but it's like, it's, it's sort of like when you compare it to again, full moon fever, where it's just a short, you know, we got three yeah. minute songs and then you get a song like first flash of freedom, which is like almost seven minutes long. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's a little bit, it's, it, you know, and some, some people may look at that and say, you know, it's a little bit self-indulgent overindulgence, you know, sort of mm-hmm. thing. But, you know, I appreciate the fact of someone trying something different uh, and you know, uh, when I reflect on that album, I'll put it in every once in a while. I'm like, you know, there's some damn good songs on this that For didn't sure. really get the attention they deserved. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one thing that they were doing, uh, the heartbreakers, when they went on that, the, the mojo tour, they started by playing four or five songs from the album five or actually, I think more like five or six on the ro- uh, during the tour which was very odd for musicians, for musicians of that kind of classic rock era. You know, you would normally go and hear one new song, you know, and then play the hits, but the heartbreakers were like, no, we, we really want to get this music out there. Um, uh, you know, and, and I, I can respect that. Yeah. We don't want to be a best of, right. Yeah. Best of band. I mean, like I get that. I, which kind of brings me on cause we're kind of running out of time, but the, the one, the one question I think that we can both, um, I don't know. Um, uh, reach like a kind of like uh well we've we've already connected pretty heavily on on tom but have we have you seen tom live before yes i i happened i was lucky enough to see him seven or eight times um oh, fantastic on different Brilliant. tours uh my biggest uh my biggest one of my biggest concert regrets though is i was working in los angeles when he did the hollywood bolt shows oh. in 2017 and what was great about tom petty at least on the u the u.s side of things is that you were never more than two years away from another heartbreakers tour you know they <laughs> right, would always do right. a summer tour so you know it was 2017 uh i had just started this new job and you know, I, I I was a little low on funds because it just had had made a major move. Just and I just couldn't justify it. I was like, you know, I'll see him again. And I didn't get, I didn't see him on that last tour. Um, yeah. But I saw him several times before, and on he always put gig? on a great show. Um, I have to say, I saw, I actually saw him on the last DJ tour, and uh, the what I remember about it, and will always stick with me, is. Uh, I, I went with a friend of mine who was kind of like on the fence because uh, I had I had a ticket uh, and and my friend that was going to go dropped out so I had another friend come with me and he was like uh, you know I I know a couple of Petty songs I don't, I'm like just come and as we were at the concert <laughs> he kept playing the guy kept playing Petty kept you know the Heartbreakers kept playing songs and my friend would turn to me and go I forgot he did this song and I go yeah, yeah he did that. And then they play another song. He goes, I forgot he did this song, you know. And they play, you know, <laughs> Mary Jane's Last Dance. Oh, he did that song. That's right. He did that song too. And and all, then my friend was like, I forgot that he had like all of those hits. And you know, the Heartbreakers were one of those bands that they ran into the problem towards the end of the career that they had way more hits than they could conceivably play in a show. Yeah. And they still wanted to pull out some gems that weren't hits that you know are fan favorites. Um, like Wildflowers, you know, that song is just such a deep and beautiful song. That wasn't a hit song. Um, it, I don't I don't even think it was a single, but it, mm. it's a song that means a lot to, to, to Petty and his fans. So they would lo- they would play that often. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was such a great experience because I just saw the sheer joy of of, of a friend going, eh, I guess I'll go to this concert. Too. That was awesome. You know, and, right. and that's always a great experience. Yeah, no, that that's totally cool. Like I, I saw him because I, I there was a long time where he didn't come over here. So he no, was he did. not. Yeah, yeah, and it was very depressing. And I was just like, it became one of those things where 
I'm never going to get to see Tom Petty. So I, I basically um, saved up some money and my mum and I, believe it or not, flew over to, to uh, New York to see him on the Mojo tour. Wow. And it was, you know, it was um, a hell of a, it's a bold move. You know, it was a bold, bold move. It wasn't a great gig, I have to say, because what I loved about your, um, what I loved about your book was towards the end, you know, you start talking about set lists, which is a real deep dive on on the core of, of, of you know, Petty, or if you're a Petty fan. And um, yeah, you know what? He he didn't get his set list right there. You know, he, he essentially just played the best of with Mojo, five tracks off Mojo in the middle. Yeah. And no, no gems, nothing. Like there was nothing, and I just left feeling really sad. But um, but still, I'd seen Tom, and there were mo- there were still moments of like, holy shit, this is Tom Petty. Yeah. This is amazing. But then, um, but then you know, he comes over, plays the uh, Isle of Wight Festival, and Pearl Jam played as well. And it was right. just like too bad. Like I'd always want to see Pearl Jam. It was fantastic. But um, yeah, so I'd never really like seen like. It, I don't know. I'd never really seen Tom like it is in his heyday or maybe even like Renaissance or anything like that. I'd always just, I don't know. It was, it was hard for him because he was fucking ill, right? He was like struggling with a lot of pain in his knees and his hips. So I didn't know that. They, they, I mean, that, that wasn't widely known. So, so when he finally did pass away and it was because of this pain that he was going through and he was self-medicating, it all became like way, like it became more clear to me and therefore I felt really guilty for giving him shit about a set list and I should have just, just been like dude just just be grateful that you're watching Tom Petty you know yeah but there you go well, but, you um, know, but it's also a sign that you're passionate as a fan you know yeah. um, you you and the thing is is the the problem with an artist like like the Heartbreakers uh, is that you you would never be able to hear every song you wanted them to play because there's just too many um, exactly. and and uh, you know, it's 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 and it's a problem. I, I've heard bands like I've I've read interviews with bands like uh, you know the Ro- like Mick Jagger, the Ro- Rolling Stones, and ACDC talk about like there are songs that we have to play because every every concert we play is somebody's first concert. And if right. you came and saw the Stones and you didn't hear Satisfaction, or you came and you saw ACDC and you didn't hear uh, you shook me all night long those fans would walk away and be like, I can't believe they didn't play that song. And then meanwhile, you got the guy who's been to 47 Stones concerts that's like, I can't believe they keep playing the same songs. So it's it's a really hard balance to make. With ACDC, couldn't they just play like three songs like You Shoot Me All Night Long, Back in in Black or whatever, and then just play like a variation of their last 10 albums, like the same three chords, like status quo or something. You know that they've oh god there's a band that needs to stop recording i love acdc but they just it's the same album for the past 10 albums right it's it's it's, what you're missing though is a damn good album they keep re-recording you know yeah Um, right yeah yeah, but yeah but but yeah it's 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 the same it's the same idea that you can you can you can see it from that perspective but yeah i mean it shows how 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 passionate and how it's great but yeah it, it was it was just such a it was just such a punch in the gut uh, uh, when 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 Tom Petty uh, passed away, and and mm. and but but in a lot of ways, um, from my perspective, it was also what kind of inspired me to work on this book because when he passed away, I was living in, in Los Angeles, as I mentioned. There was just this tremendous outpouring of grief from the city 
that I almost didn't expect and I didn't realize how deeply ingrained he was in the culture and the heartbeat of the city. It was very similar to a couple of years later when Kobe Bryant died uh, and there was just this outpouring of grief in in Los Angeles because, you know, he was the the great player of the Lakers. Um, Heartbreaking. Yeah, and it was just sort of this this feeling that 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 there was, the whole city was just you know even people that didn't really particularly like Tom Petty's music could feel that loss, mm. and I realized there was that deep connection between him and the city, and and that sort of you know kind of informed the writing of my book, and and why of course the introduction is is focused on that final final concert because that really really did trigger the the love that los angeles has for tom petty uh in my mind and i think probably in a lot of other people's minds no no you're bang on man like you know trying just to, he he wanted to be known as a californian band i guess because man and band because that's what that's where everything happened for him you know yeah. he's not you're not like okay from gainesville but california informed yeah. him right but, he always um, wanted the heartbreakers to be a california known as a california band he did yeah. not that he, he said they were formed in Cal. We formed in California. Yeah, we're all from all over the place. Uh, well, we're all from Florida, but we formed in California. We're a California band. He very much saw the, saw the Heartbreakers in the tradition of the Birds and yeah. Buffalo Springfield. Like he he really he really saw that. You know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young. He saw that as we were continuing that tradition, and uh, that's that's and and hey, I, I I think of him as a California band. So cool. Have you seen him do the, um, just before we go, it's this really cool thing that um, got me, because the other day I, had, I get a bit of insomnia lately. God, Pearl, my daughter wakes me up and then I can't, <laughs> she, she goes back to sleep, but I can't. But anyway, uh, it was, um, is it Jerry, uh, the, the chat show, Jerry, Sand- uh, Jerry Sanders, right? Oh, uh, the, uh, uh, Larry Sanders show. Larry Sanders, Larry yeah. Sanders show, right? So um, I've just started Gary tapping Shanley. into that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the Tom Petty's in it, right? For like all of about a minute and a half. Tom was just, I think, the mark of the man. King of the Hill as well. You know, The Simpsons in that um, radio shows that he's done. He's always done like, he's always, and he, like amazing music videos, which we haven't touched on, which is fine. But yeah. he's just, you know, he's always like pushing himself and always doing the cool shit, right? He's... N- He's, he's got such he had such a good ear such a good eye for the good stuff that he went after and you know that when i saw that for the first time the other day i laughed my ass off on the um uh larry sanders show i i laughed my ass off man it was so funny yeah he um he, one of the things i i always respect and admire about tom petty is he 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 took his he took his music very seriously but he didn't take himself super seriously in terms yeah. of his public image um, you would never have seen Bruce Springsteen dress as the Mad Hatter for a music video. You know, sure. you would never have seen Bob Seger, you know, uh, doing uh, the voice of a redneck on King of the Hill. You know, yeah. it was just sort of like <laughs> he, 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 he had fun doing that. And why, why stop yourself from having fun? If you got to make a music video for MTV, you know, in 1985, why not make it kind of goofy and fun? Enjoy yourself. Yeah. Because otherwise, you're taking yourself way too seriously. 
And uh, it's something that his fans respected. And that's what's great about like his his radio show on Sirius XM that he recorded all of these like silly little ditties, you know, and all his like his 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 joking comments. He just he just liked to have he, he just wanted to enjoy himself. And that's something that you can definitely respect. Definitely. Like when you when you write a song like Zombie Zoo or Full Moon Fever, you know that the future's got some fun in it for you. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Oh, of um, course. Like I, I'm gonna obviously put a preamble out sure. and uh, tell people to, to to love this book, not to love it, to to buy it rather to invest their time in it. Um, but is there anything you want to to add to like people listening, like maybe why they, sh- I mean, why they should buy it? I mean, that's a big thing for you to do, obviously, because it's like, oh shit, um, put you on the spot a bit there. Yeah, please buy no. my book. But if there's anything you want to add, like please feel free. Uh, you know what? What I like to uh, just kind of point out about my my book, uh, and again, it's uh, somewhere you feel free. Tom Petty and Los Angeles uh, by Christopher McKittrick. Um, I want just like to point out that what I really tried to do in the book is show the connection of Tom Petty's career and the culture and the changes that underwent in Los Angeles. Um, you know what was going on in the city at the time that he was recording there. What was going on? What were what was going on with all the venues that he performed at? You know, he performed at the almost every legendary venue in Los Angeles. You know, from the Troubadour to the Hollywood Bowl. What were what, what's so significant about these places? You know, you may have heard of the name the Troubadour, the Hollywood Bowl, but what's the history and why was it so important for Tom Petty to play? You know, perform there, um, and really showing that connection. Um, certainly, there's there's been so much written about Tom Petty, but that's the angle that I took because I really appreciate the connection he had with his adopted hometown. And you know, I hope you take a look at my book and you enjoy it. Brilliant, man. Well, thank you so much. That's that's, that's really cool. I love the angle. I, I, I love this book. It was uh, it was easy to read and very hard to put down. Thank you.